0: Hello and welcome to Dialogue and Debate. My name's Ed Newell and I'm the Chief Executive here at Cumberland Lodge. If you're unfamiliar with us, we're an educational charity founded in 1947 and based in Windsor Great Park. We convene multi-sector conferences, panel debates and retreats that engage people of all ages, backgrounds and perspectives in candid conversations on pressing societal issues. Dialogue and Debate is our regular series of hour-long webinars where we respond to key themes that emerge from our conferences and other work, and where we also discuss topical issues focused on building social cohesion. Last month, we looked at the social impact of sport, how inclusive sport can help tackle social and economic inequalities. And if you missed it, you can watch it on demand via the Read, Watch, Listen page of our website, or on SoundCloud and other major podcasting platforms. Today's topic is schooling and inequality, and we'll be discussing what a sustainable and inclusive schooling system might look like, and how we can best address inequalities within our education system. And to do so, I'm delighted that we're joined by Kim Rihal, co-founder and head of partnerships at Equal Education, Professor Barnaby Lennon, Chair of the Independent Schools Council. And I hope very much joining us in due course, Josiah Senu, Deputy Chair of the Sutton Trust Alumni uh, Leadership Board. Thank you very much indeed for being with us. And to those who are joining us live, you can put questions to our panelists using the Q&A function on Zoom or by commenting on our Facebook live stream. also be live tweeting and we'd like to hear your views and questions which you can send by tweeting at Cumberland Lodge and using the hashtag dialogue debate. As we normally do we're going to start with a quick poll to hear from all who are taking part and the poll will pop up on your screen now and the question is do you think the education system in the UK helps or hinders social progress for young people? Helps, hinders, not sure, so let's see what participants think. So twenty six say percent say helps forty seven percent hinders. not sure. Thank you very much indeed. Well, that helps to contextualize the discussion. So we're going to start with uh, with Kim. And Kim, overall GCSE and A-level results uh, were better than ever this year. But if we start to dig deeper, are there underlying issues about relative performance between students from different backgrounds and also about equality of opportunity within the education system.
1: Thank you, Ed. Well, in a system that fails a third of its pupils at GCSEs, I guess a phenomenon known as the forgotten third, this does okay. offer us some hope of increased access to employment and opportunities, as well as access to further education, skills, and training. Our organisation. Equal Education was founded to narrow this attainment gap for vulnerable pupils who have the lowest attainment rates in the country. But I guess even before the pandemic, students from disadvantaged backgrounds, as, mes- as those measured by free school meals, were on average 18 months behind their peers. I mean, the pandemic positively affected attainment rates in the cohorts we work with, as seen in um, some of the stats that I'll, I'll read out. But in t- 2018, 2019, looked after children achieved... An Attainment 8 score of 12.9, and for those in care less than 12 months, and 19 for those in care over a year, compared to the average Attainment 8 score of 46.7 for all pupils. So no, no exams has definitely been a positive for those who experience high levels of anxiety, which has often resulted in them not being at school. Um, but I think what's been really important is supporting children who are not on a school role and completing their coursework. Um, And I think given the disparity online delivery um, in online delivery between the state and private sector, it's been inevitable that some independent schools would widen their advantage over state schools in terms of results. Um, And I guess it's something that we've really tried to focus on is our delivery via Zoom, mobilising with a crisis communication centre to ensure tuition could support students as much as possible. Uh, I guess the other point I'd like to make is that students from disadvantaged children, sorry, disadvantaged backgrounds are less likely than those, um, those who have, for example, gone on to independent schools, have had the time and resources to kind of dispute some of their grades. And some of these higher, higher grades I mean more students have been accepted onto universities, for example, uh, even though many, we've seen many universities oversubscribe to accommodate the offers.
0: Thank you very much indeed, Kim. That helps to, to set things uh, up. Can I just ask you one sort of mm. supplementary question around that for those who uh, are taking part, who are not sure about what the free school meals is- issue is? I mean, what, are the, what are the criteria for, for free school meals? What are the areas of disadvantage that are, that are being looked at?
1: Certainly. Um, so this could um cover um families, for example, who may be in receipt of means tested benefits, um, and and so actually therefore it would make children eligible uh, to be in receipt of free of free school meals.
0: Thank you. Okay, we'll we'll come back into that no doubt. Barnaby, can we move on to um to, to you and to ask you how does equality of opportunity look? from the perspective of independent schools, particularly through the work that's done on widening participation and improving access?
2: Um, yeah, so I think, it's, I think it's worth saying first of all, that uh, I personally uh, went to a direct grant school in the 1970s and direct grant schools were very effective schools. They got very good exam results. They were private private schools, independent schools, but any any child who passed the entrance test, if they couldn't afford the fees, like my parents, the local authority paid the fees. And so the abolition of the direct grant schools in the late 1970s um, was a step back really for the independent sector. Um, and they've been you know fighting hard to try and recover the position because obviously you know all independent school heads do believe in diversity. Um, a third of pupils in independent schools are on bursaries, and you know how many bursaries depends on the relative wealth of the school, I guess. But if you go to a former direct grant school like Manchester Grammar School, for example, they've got over two hundred pupils on bursaries, and you know the average bursary there is about ninety-four percent. So they are uh, having quite a big impact on let's say, bright children from council estates in Manchester. It's the same with King Edwards, Birmingham, where I'm a governor now. You know, they, they, because they were a direct grant school, because many of their alumni uh, were on free places, you know, 40, 50 years ago, they're very, very anxious that they should devote every penny they possibly can to large bursaries, for children from Birmingham, but not all schools have the resources to do that. I mean, one of the things I think I need to say, Ed, right at the start is that, you know, the average independent school is a junior school, a primary school with fewer than 400 pupils. So most independent schools, you know, are quite small and and don't have any kind of foundation or wealth behind them. Um, Anyway, so bursaries is one. Um, Secondly, independent Schools uh, have, to some, some relatively small degree, at this point, been helping to set up state schools. So, when I retired from teaching and being a head teacher, um, I helped set up the London Academy of Excellence, a sixth form in Newham, a state sixth form, and uh, and then shortly afterwards, Westminster School, not far from me, uh, set up um, Harris Westminster. Uh, Eton has recently announced they're setting up three schools on a similar model. Um, I think probably the first was Wellington College, who set up Wellington School on Salisbury Plain. So that you know, the setting up of state schools is something that we have done, but on a more limited scale. The, 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 other, the other thing which all schools are doing is running partnerships. I mean, about eighty-five percent of all our schools, all the large ones and quite a lot of the small ones, have partnerships with state schools, which are mutually helpful. But, you know, in those partnerships, you get, well, en- endless types of project, frankly. Um, but, you know, they include Oxford tuition, tuition for pupils who are perhaps uh, on the grade three, four boundary at GCSE, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, another, another example, I won't belabor this, but another example would be the Royal National Children's Springboard, um, which provides places for looked after children, in boarding and day schools. Um, it helps those children who are on the edge of care or where there's a lack of appropriate parental care and brokers available boarding school places for those children. Um, and that's on a quite a big scale. Anyone who's interested in that just needs to Google the Royal National Children's Springboard to see the incredible work that they are doing. And the thing is, you know, much of this didn't exist 20 years ago. Now it exists on a very large scale and is growing every year um, with the encouragement of um, to some extent the Department of Education it'll never be enough um, partly because as I say you know many of our schools are quite small but it's you know we're doing our we're doing our best I would say in difficult circumstances difficult circumstances financially for all our schools in the past year particularly
0: thank you very much indeed it's really really helpful to get that that broad perspective we're moving on now to uh josiah and welcome so we didn't get a chance to say welcome properly to begin with um josiah question for you is the lack of financial means is just is one barrier to accessing private and and later higher education Are there other barriers as well and if so what should we be doing to address them
3: uh, great question. Thank you for having me, and apologies for being late. Um, uh, to, to answer the, the question, I mean, uh, from firstly, I think it's important to address the fact that finance is an incredibly um, difficult um, issue for for many for many students, uh, because uh, you know you're talking about students who are coming from low income families, um, you know, free school meals. Uh, that's an incredible disadvantage. Um, even when they get to university, for example, um, they're unable to pay for three. Sc- full meals a day um, and they're having to, to reach out to sort of for support from other student bodies like the National Union of Students, for example, to require support. And, you know, that's not of their function. That's not what they're d- designed to do. So first and foremost, I mean, fi- finance is an, a significant barrier but then I, th- I think the educational disadvantage which which occurs happens much earlier on and you know it is related to finance actually but it's a much broader issue which is how much funding that we're actually putting into the state education system because fundamentally um, the what what's happening is uh, students who are at state schools are you know funded significantly less than students who are at private school and that ha- that doesn't have an impact because so imagine you know being able to do extracurricular activities and in investing in debating, being able to to do cultural trips around the world and the cultural exchange that brings, the opportunities to meet other people. Like it's, you know, it it, it creates a vast difference. There's There's a huge gap between, you know, your state school student and your private school student. And, and then it magnifies at the point of entry to universities like Oxford and Cambridge. We're saying, you know, the top eight schools in, in the United Kingdom are, are responsible for as many um, uh, people going to Oxbridge as the 2,900 below them. I mean, that is an absolutely astonishing figure, if, if you ask me. So something, you know, quite frankly, needs to happen from from a, from even a budgeting perspective, that the, the you know the government needs to put more money in in state schools in order for state schools to reach a standard that that they need to. I mean that's that's the broader you know, financial issue which is attached onto it. Um but I think there there are other structural disadvantages which come out from um, you know the opportunities available to students. So you know you're talking you're you're talking about I mean, are our um, students being able to have the the clubs that they need, the societies that they need, do they have access to the um, resources, you know, revision textbooks. And um, so talking from personal experience, um, my my school, you know, where I went to Frederick, Frederick Bremer School, you know, we didn't have enough textbooks to have for one, you know, one per each person. Um, you have to share between three four people and you know when when you're in class and nobody you know uh, you, people have different expectations for learning different behaviors <laughs> sorry different behaviors for learning that can be quite you know an, a difficult thing to try and 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 take charge of so it, the the disadvantages are are quite strong um they they do permeate a lot and it's you know it's really soft you know even looking at a professional um, from a professional perspective you know when students finish university and they go on um, you know the euphemisms for class discrimination like you know are you polished Um, do you fit in are you speaking in the right way the right tones I mean uh, why is it that an asset an accent from Essex is different from received pronunciation and will have an impact on your job, I mean, should it have an impact on your job? Um, myself, um, wanting a career at, at the bar, for example. Um, why why is it the case that if you hear a Mancunian accent or a Scouser accent, you think that the individual is less intelligent, has more or less intelligent points to to make? It's I I think you know I, I think is quite frankly preposterous. But those are the things that are baked into um our understanding of what it means to be privileged or advantaged or um fit to fit in, in into into um the British society society, uh, you know, so from, from, from my perspective, there are a number of, of different uh, disadvantages uh, and there's probably not enough time to go through
0: them all. <laughs> Thank you very much in, indeed, Josiah. Um, we've, Barnaby wants to come come, come and re- respond, so let's go to, to Barnaby instantly.
2: Yeah, can I, can I so, so first of all, I want to say that I completely agree with everything Josiah has said. Um, uh, I don't disagree with that at all. I think I think that in this discussion, uh, particularly about you know this last year's uh, exam results, there's a danger of um, giving the impression that you know all independent schools did incredibly well, all state schools did rather badly, and that simply would not be true. There were a large number of state schools that did remarkably well, um, and uh, that that fact just has to be acknowledged. And you know, and even in the top eight schools that. Josiah mentions, in terms of sending numbers to Oxbridge, you know, there are state schools, state schools which always do very well um, in that group. The other thing I would say from my own state school um, in the East End of London, uh, another barrier is essentially about misinformation. I think that, um, you know, we've worked hard over 10 years now to try and educate our sixth formers um, and in particular their parents, so they understand some of the realities of going to university. And in particular, uh, I think two things. One is the idea that there is a hierarchy of universities. And, it's, you know, some universities are more prestigious and are better in various respects than others. And uh, in trying to encourage our children, our students, most of whom get 3A grades, to go to the best universities—that may sound absolutely obvious—but it, it's interesting to me that that has proved to be a bit of a challenge. Um, and you know, Josiah will, I think, re- be the first to agree that you know, if you want to be a barrister, it's good to go to a, u- a good university, one with a good reputation. Um, and yet, that's something we've had to explain to them. Uh, and the second thing is that many children from uh, more disadvantaged backgrounds believe that they have to do a vocational subject at university, that it's really only vocational subjects that lead to good jobs. Um, And uh, that's a great shame if, in fact, for one of those students, their best subject is a subject like history or English, because we know that in reality, most jobs don't require a particular degree subject. And if that is their best subject, it's the one to go for. Um, And so trying to persuade... Our able students to go for non-vocational subjects is also something of, of a challenge. And we work on that with, uh, as I say, both the, the children, but just as important, the, the parents, uh, very few of whom went to university themselves, and they just need to know these truths, if you like. But these are also barriers in terms of your question.
0: Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Kim, you want to come in as well?
1: Sorry, thank you. Just, just to further add, I, I, I think there is something to be said about tackling this supposed imposter syndrome, really, and looking at these networks of privilege, because whilst it's one thing for students to get the grades, but actually it's then fitting in the social and cultural aspect. And I particularly um, want to share Musain Ismail, head of Newham Sixth Form College, who went on to study law. But, but again, I um, stated he suffered this imposter syndrome around social events and attending these elaborate dinners, who actually now runs one of the most successful state run colleges in the country, but there is also a wider holistic piece of work there to be done, not just around the grades, but how do we how are we then inclusive and I think that's very important.
0: Hmm. Thank you, Josiah. We want to come in on this. Yeah, I
3: mean, uh, to, to come back on, on something that Barnaby mentioned about how uh, you have some state schools which are, you know, achieving phenomenal results, and and there are state schools that are achieving phenomenal results. That is absolutely fantastic. It's it, there's some progress has been made, but I do have to say that those state schools are highly selective. You know, I went to a state comprehensive community school in the northeast of London with absolutely no funding resources and who had staff under improvement for a very long time. It's those schools that really need the attention. Um, you know, when you look at let's say Parliament. For example, eighty-eight percent of MPs come from highly selective schools, state or private or grammar. So, fundamentally, it's about a broadening access. It's about equality of opportunity, but it's also incredibly about fairness um, and, and people getting ultimately what, what they deserve. So, it, there, there is you know, there is some uh, conversation to be had on, on making sure that we, you know, that the, the, there is improvement progress, but not to not to suggest so that, that progress is in any way where we actually you know want to go towards like I do think that there needs to do, the, the, the the ideal environment is every school in the United Kingdom being able to breed the success and talent that we need it to do and actually I, I do want to agree with Barnaby on something that he did later say on which is about misinformation but I'll actually even add something further to that which is to say the edu- education um, you know I, I I went back to my local school and started you know talking about my experiences and you know most of them don't even know what Harvard is I mean or Oxford it is I and mean, you're you know you're talking about you know students who we want to become the next leaders of our generation attend elite institutions you know level up uh, bring everyone up together and they don't necessarily know these places uh, you know from from school so how how could they aspire how could they get on to the next level so there is there is also that part of it which is you know there is the misinformation exercise but there's also the education exercise which needs to happen um uh, as well just just wanted to, to offer those two points
0: there's a, a question that's come in. It's a rather long question, so I'm not going to read it out. But but the, the gist of it is that with a lot of focus being put on uh, helping people from disadvantaged backgrounds, within society more generally and certainly within the university sector, are we seeing a bit of a backlash which then negatively impacts on those that have gone through an independent uh, uh, Route that there's, we're going to end up with a more bias trying to address uh, issues around uh, widening participation in the process. Uh, encourage others. So the, the the person quotes that 36%. I know until this statistics is correct. 36% of independent school children decide to go to U.S. universities away f- from the hostile narrative around them and. Uh, uh, and i suppose the implication is that is this going to lead to some sort of brain drain in the in the longer term i just wonder whether anyone's got a, a view on that maybe barnaby i could come to you first yeah so so i think
2: i've got you know quite several things i could say about that first of all this is not a new issue um it's, i guess it's been rumbling on for 20 years secondly independent schools uh, and all sensible people agree with contextual admission systems in other words If a child is coming from uh, a school which has a relatively poor academic record, um, then they might well be asked for lower grades than someone who comes from a school with a very strong academic record, whether that's state or independent. That seems to us entirely sensible because what universities should be doing is looking for those students with the best potential that they can possibly find. Um, And... uh, Exam results are one way of determining that potential, probably the best, actually, but they're not by any means the only way of determining that potential. So, I mean, what? it's it's not true that 36% of independent school pupils are heading to the United States. Uh, It's a much, much smaller proportion than that. But as the Sutton Trust will tell you, um, the fact is that uh, there is a a gradually growing number of our best students, from independent schools and through the Sutton Trust and other bodies going to the United States because the United States, the top universities in the United States are very good at promoting themselves. They send representatives over here, they come and visit schools and they offer big bursaries and scholarships. Um, And in many ways, they're quite attractive universities, partly because you don't have to commit yourself to a particular discipline in your first year. Some Mm -hmm. students really like that. I mean, I've had students um, under my care who have been offered places at Oxford and Cambridge and have chosen instead to go to places like Stanford because they're better for particular co- courses. Uh, and all of that seems to be fair enough. Um, but I mean, I, I totally agree. We don't want it to become a brain drain because these are good students and some of them won't come back. Um, but so all we're really asking is that all universities, but perhaps particularly the most prestigious universities uh, are very clear about their admissions processes. So there's no great uncertainty. We all know where we stand. Um, Contextual admissions will definitely be part of that. Um, But it would be a shame if uh, independent schools and perhaps grammar schools, and perhaps even um, those more middle-class comprehensive schools got the impression that their children weren't welcome at some of our better universities. That would be a great shame surely for those universities, as well as for the individual children concerned as well. So um, I think that, you know, the push that there's been to uh, attract and then accept more people from disadvantaged backgrounds has been a good thing. Um, it, it's all been perhaps rather distorted by the great inflation of the last two years, um, but nevertheless, it's, it's absolutely right. Um, And we want universities to continue with that, but to be very transparent about it. uh, Independent schools, finally, from me, independent schools, uh, if you ask them about this, say their best students do still get in to Oxford and Cambridge and the medical schools. Those are the three most difficult uh, courses to access. They do still get in, um, but they're they're worried about some of the mood music. So it's the mood music that needs to be got right.
0: Yeah, Josiah, I want to come in. Sutton Trust has been mentioned in this, so uh... absolutely, and
3: I think um, the, the Sutton Trust does in value to an incredible extent. Um, the approach of U.S. universities to outreach to scholarships, um, and, and it, you know there is the the Sutton Trust U.S. program. I haven't been a part of it, but you know I was part of a, the sister program in the U.K. and um, went to a U.K. summer school. So uh, you know, the benefit of having attended these programs, you know, are, are, you know, are absolutely unbelievable. Actually, um, there is uh, something truly special about being with a group of your your peers uh, who come from similar backgrounds to you and the, the university environment welcoming you and saying that you know this is a place for you to 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 be in and there are two things i think i want to pick up from what barnaby has said so which is firstly about the outreach programs and secondly about um uh, the uh, contextual admissions. So, well, firstly, on the on 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 the outreach programs, it, my my take and my view on it is that not enough is being done by universities in the UK to reach out to students from far and wide. Um, uh, independent schools are, you know, building programs um, to to do that internally, um, and you know the, the 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 intelligence and the funding behind it makes it a little bit easier. But you know, you hope that that spreads out to uh, a, a way of work methods of practice spreads out to other schools um, across the United Kingdom. So, you know, there, there is the internal drive, but also the external drive. And, you know, when both are able to match together, then you're able to create an environment where, you know, the, the person who comes from um, rural Somerset or the person who comes from an inner city, London town, or in in in, in North Manchester, they feel like, you know, they actually belong and, you know, a place is for them at these institutions. Because for all intents and purposes, they, you know, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, LSE, UCLK, you know, th- these are the places that we're saying are, you know, elite institutions that are ranking really highly across the world. And we're presenting a narrative that if you don't, you know, don't go to those universities, you won't, you won't achieve much in life. And so if we're going to perpetuate that, then there's more has to be done, at least um, from those universities to reach out and attract the, the best talent. And then I think secondly, um, on, on the, the contextual admissions, I, I, I think that is super important to the overall Um, uh, impact that any program or policy has in the UK to move forward Needle on and inequality because if we don't look at students within their context, um, then we will never really allow the people who may not necessarily demonstrate academic ability today, but have unbelievable potential tomorrow. We will basically lose out on them. Uh, anyway, we, we, we pride ourselves, I think, in the in the UK on our ability to harness the best out of Britain, uh, of us to you know take the best resources that we have and really work with people from all sorts of backgrounds. You know, Emma Raducanu is is a, is a great uh, a great example of the greatness the greatness that we have in this country so you know w- what more can we do to try and facilitate that both on the outreach but also about recognizing people in their situ and how we can necessarily grow them
0: thank you we've got, we've got another question that's come in from anonymous uh, participant and i suppose it sort of it's talks about some of the things that the barnaby mentioned earlier on when he was talking about direct grant schools I mean, wherever we are in this country, we've got a very complicated uh, setup. We've got lots of different systems in place. And sitting in Windsor Great Park, I'm conscious that we're in the few places in the country where there's still got a middle school system existing. But the question here is, the disparity is obvious between privately funded at state schools, but state schools in some counties are still selective, e.g. Kent Test. Do you agree or disagree with the grammar school system And why? So maybe all three participants could give their view on grammar schools. Who'd like to kick off? I'm I'm happy to kick off. Thank you. you. Uh, I mean, I mean, I have looked at this
2: quite carefully um, um, because I've written a couple of books about state schools and it is it is a really difficult one to come down clearly because, Um, I mean, if I can be brave enough to attempt to summarise what the research says, the research says that children who go to grammar schools probably do better than they would have done had they gone to a fully comprehensive school. However, the children who don't go to grammar schools in grammar school areas quite probably do worse than they would have done had they been in an area which did not have grammar schools. So grammar schools, obviously the obverse of a grammar school is what used to be called a secondary modern school. Um, But the the more able pupils of those schools, which obviously these days are called comprehensives or academies, the more able pupils have been stripped out by the grammar schools. And that, that does slightly depress those schools. So, um, so that you see what i mean there is no easy answer there are there are only about 160 grammar schools in england so it's not a huge number but in those areas obviously they have an impact and the the reason they've survived is because they are still very popular with parents in those areas even though many of the children of those parents won't actually get in to the grammar schools they they do recognize that the grammar schools themselves are of very, very good quality, um, and therefore they have local support. And you'll find that, you know, on the whole, the local MPs will support the continuation and even expansion of those local grammar schools.
0: Kim and Josiah, have you got views on, on grammar schools?
1: Certainly. Certainly. Um, uh... I mean, this is quite complex. And so I just, just to further build on, I guess, Barnaby was saying in terms of those statistics, I myself grew up in the borough of Barnet, where there are still predominantly a high number of grammar schools. And when I was teaching, uh, I actually really advocated for a child in care to be sent to a particular grammar school. Um, although there was a lot of um, conflict between biological parents who were petrified and actually deemed this as a, uh, cult because they had no understanding and no awareness of what the school could do for this child. Uh, he absolutely thrived attending attending a grammar school, and I think that we need to really be selecting um, uh, really vulnerable children who we feel this would be really supportive environment for. And I think if we're looking at a child, you know, will they, will this they support them or will this be will this be quite difficult for them? I think all of those um, need, really need to be taken into account. So first-hand experience of actually seeing how it's been really positive for really vulnerable children.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
3: Um, I mean, I, 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 I guess, I, I mean, unless, Ed, you, you want to be for the conversation, I do have a, a, a one, one or two thoughts. Um, Please do,
0: no bloke, absolutely. Um, um,
3: I, I, will treat, I will come from a principal perspective and then a, the theoretical, pragmatic perspective. So the, the principal argument is I don't think we should have private schools, grammar schools at all. I mean I, I think uh, you know, fundamentally, we should be promoting an education system which benefits everyone um, you know the, the, what, what, what you know uh, the, the disparity in incomes and pay et cetera affecting people's educational outcomes to me, seen from a principal perspective odd um uh, and we, we shouldn't have that but you know living in a world that we do where we do have grammar schools and we do have private independent schools what's the what's the the lesser of all evils in my from my perspective um it's a situation of uh under appreciating that grammar schools do offer advantage but not advantage to the benefit of necessarily those who always need it so you know it's not to say that grammar schools are a bad thing and that's not what i'm saying at all um it's a more question of you know i, I- this research, I think, has to be updated a little bit. And if anyone has more numbers, it would be, better numbers, it would be helpful to, to clarify. But my understanding is based on research in 2013, at least, that less than 3% of students who attend grammar schools actually are on free school meals. So when we're talking about you know, those who are socially disadvantaged and don't have access to the, you know, to, to the means in order to enable them to succeed at school, the gra- grammar schools aren't necessarily you know, attracting those pupils. Um, so is it further entrenching what already exists in educational disparity or offering something different? Is it actually you know, uh, opening up access or taking away? I, I I would be very, you know, if anyone hasn't been you know, any num- better numbers, it would be helpful to, to me to understand. But you know, that, that would be my, my perspective. And I think grammar schools need to just do, maybe do a little bit more.
0: Thank you. While we're in this sort of territory of these different styles of schools, um, speaking very personally, I've been a school governor in both uh, state and private schools, and I've been really struck by the, the difference um, from a governance point of view. And um, certainly within the state sector, there's this enormous uh, top-down pressure uh, in terms of performance, compliance, the pressure that's on teaching staff compared with the relative freedom that you find within the private school uh, system. But conversely, I would say, certainly from my personal experience, and this may be just the schools I've been involved in, uh, I've seen less rigor in terms of sort of measuring, monitoring progress of of students uh, within the the private sector than than on the state. And just sort of teasing out some of the things that Barnaby was mentioning earlier on about um, the advantages of... of, um, of those of cooperation but what might we learn about best practice by comparing the two sectors and trying to distill what's the the best out of both and try to to get cross-fertilization i suppose
2: yeah well i mean every every school does something better than uh, another neighboring school it doesn't matter whether it's independent grammar uh, state school, that's the case. I completely agree with your example, actually, and that is that I think that um, over the last 20 years, partly because of pressure initially from Ofsted and the government, state schools were much better than independent schools at collecting data, and it was because they were better at collecting data that they were able to measure the, the progress. Um, I think independent schools have, in the last 15 years, learned quite a lot from state schools, um, about the value of all, the, all these progress scores. Um, and, uh, and But the general point is that you know every school can learn from every other school. I mean, when I was a teacher and a head, I loved going to visit other schools of any type. Uh, and I always learned more from spending maybe 20 minutes in such a school than I learned from any amount of CPD. Mm. So it's quite right.
0: Kim, Josiah, what do you think we might be able to do to build bridges, learn from each other?
1: I, I believe that um, Barnaby touched on this earlier, um, but actually the, the partnerships that are happening with the Royal National Children's Springboard Foundation um, is absolutely fantastic and actually supporting children Um You know, we've actually built a partnership with themselves um, providing a level tuition to these to these young people um, um, to support them in their transition into independent schools. And I think that they're an excellent example of the fantastic work that's taking place across the country, forging public private partnerships to really achieve that impact. Um, and really promoting diversity and inclusion into private schools, but as well as helping private private schools, independent schools tackling bigger issues.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would agree, agree, agree with that. My, my, my view on it is um, I, I always love coalitions, partnerships, working together. Um, it's always better, isn't it? So uh, the, the more that that can be done um, across board, the better. I do think that. Uh, charities like the Sutton Trust into university and so forth do have important roles to play alongside this to, to smooth the transition and, and make it easier. Providing, you know, the research, the the, the, the numbers to, to, to prove why this makes sense. Um, it's pretty obvious to everybody, I think, that um, if you have a more diverse, inclusive environment, if you promote and facilitate bursary scholarships, you improve access, that ultimately you actually do better for everyone. Everyone does what everyone benefits. So um, uh, I think we're all aligned on the ultimate outcomes and vision, it's just about doing doing the hard miles and and getting everyone together around the table and saying, you know, well, how are we actually going to make this happen?
0: Thank you. Thank you also to Laura Slater, who sent in um, a link and uh, regarding grammar school. So thank you, Laura, for for doing that for us. Um, Got a question here from uh, Lydia Kite, who's asked, uh, we have heard about support interventions available to some children Once they're in school, notably secondary school, the evidence is that children from disadvantaged backgrounds are already behind, uh, in inverted commas, when they begin formal education, age five. Are the interventions described by the speakers too late to make a real difference to those born into disadvantage? So open that up to all of you to respond to. Joshua, you're, you're, you're nodding your head, so you go ahead.
3: No, absolutely. I mean, I, I really appreciate Lydia's question actually, because I think it, it does say um, a lot that, you know, from an early age, you know, you are basically behind. I think there've been numerous UN studies actually, which say that it can even happen as early as six months old, um, whereby you're, you're sort of already left behind, depending on, you know, have your parents exposed you to multiple languages, for example, are you, are you traveling around the world? Are you, um, uh, have you been to prep school? You know, all of, all of this stuff really does have an impact on ultimately where you end up. So I think there is a fair question to ask, you know, at what point do we start intervening in the life of the child and start providing the impact and support that they need to, to progress? My my view is that actually um, it, you don't necessarily need to, to come in incredibly early. What, what you need to do is eat at some point during the educational journey equalize. And I think the best place to do so is actually from from, you know, once they hit 11, 12 years old, um it, it makes a lot of sense to, to begin providing the the platform by which students can progress um but you know I appreciate Lydia's question because I I do think there is something to say about you know all from primary school perhaps is is the necessary support being
0: provided to enable students to succeed Kim do you want to come in on this one
1: thank you no I I absolutely uh, agree there Josiah actually uh, all all children will have experienced some form of adverse childhood experiences. This is this is universal, sadly, irrespective of what school. Um, and I'm pretty sure that um, children have been affected at some point. You know, this and whether this relates to kind of anxiety and mental health, which we've seen worsened during the pandemic. Um, there is something to be said about early intervention. I I do I do agree with that. However, I think I think what's really integral is having that one consistent adult now whether that is a parent whether that is a teacher whether that's a tutor whoever that might be but constantly reinforcing and supporting that child and I'm not necessarily sure that that has to be done early years but actually that can come in later and I think that makes a huge difference to that child and what they're able to achieve.
0: And Barnaby I'm sort of pulling on that what sort of What sort of very early education is best for kids when you you wouldn't want to presumably just put them through increasing pressure, academic pressure earlier and earlier, but presumably there's much broader things among what's to do to help young people flourish and uh, that age. um, Yeah. So so a few years ago, I wrote a book,
2: Much Promise, about some of the most successful state schools and, all of them were successful with disadvantaged children, incidentally. That was how I measured it. And um, the primary schools I went to visit, which got outstanding key stage two results with disadvantaged children, the one thing that they all did was they had um, a lot of intervention with parents at a very young age. Um, they, I, mean, I remember a school um, in Acton where they... Uh, because they had a a relatively small catchment area around the primary school, they were in touch with parents when children were born because they knew that those children would be heading to their primary school in due course. And some of those parents were recent immigrants from places like Somalia, uh, and so they taught those parents to read. They gave all parents Mm -hmm. advice about uh, how to read to their child because we know... Um, that it's, it's the failure to talk to your children and ultimately to read to them that generally leads to them being well behind by the age of five, as has already been said. It's interesting, incidentally, that um, the gap between free school meal and other children tends to close during primary age, but then it widens again in secondary. So primary schools actually do quite a good job. They don't, of course, eliminate the gap, but they do quite a good job uh, at narrowing it. So at the moment, really, the problem, the problem, and I agree with Josiah on this, is the, uh, the secondary schools, because so many of these children who are, you know, have struggled throughout their time at school relative to some of their peers, um, tend to give up when they're 14 or
0: 15. And that's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. We've our focus has been very much on this country. Uh, obviously, education is uh, a big thing everywhere. And um, are there educational systems around the world that one has come across that you think, yeah, they do it better than we do, um, or lessons that we can more subtle lessons we could learn from from looking around the world, or is the UK? The, the gold standard. I don't know whether anyone's got views on this. Barnaby, you well, have. Well, yeah, I mean, look, the big weakness in this country,
2: as we all know, is vocational education after the age of 16. Um, I mean, to some extent, and this is quite a big point, inequality in this country feels rather entrenched by public exam results. Um, But as a society, I would say we attach a bit too much importance to academic results, and in particular, the way that we divide the population into sheep and goats at the age of 16, Um, when the the, the, the most academic 50% go on to take A-levels, but the weaker 50%, you know, half the population, go into underfunded further education colleges, where they come across vocational qualifications, which are too numerous, little understood, often of low status. Um, And this is a problem for us because, you know, before the 1980s, many children left school without particularly good uh, exam results, but they were able to find local employers who were able to offer them training and a job for life. That has become less common now. And, you know, I would want to recommend David Goodhart's books uh, where he writes about the jobs of head, hand and heart. You know, the jobs of the head, those that that require intellectual ability, but also that huge range of jobs which require skill in terms of making things and the heart, those people who work in care, also huge numbers these days. And how are they served by the uh, education system? Um, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't, I mean, to answer your question about other countries, um, obviously we can all learn something from other countries. But I would particularly say we ought to be looking at countries like you know, France, Holland, and Germany as exemplars of how much better vocational education can be for the less academic 50% than what we have on offer in the country now. And the only problem is that we've been debating this since about 1870.
0: Yes. I have to, I mean, just responding to that, last week I was doing a school visit for my son who's changing school. And my daughter is doing uh, A-level English and thinking of doing English at university. And on the wall in the school was a, a thing saying what you could do with a degree in English. And the first thing you saw was um, executive assistant. Now, I thought, is that really the best uh, aspiration or indeed the best use of someone's intellect to to do three years at university and then uh, move into an area where a vocational course would be much more sensible and uh, and better training? Anyway, that was my little gripe. Uh, Kim and... uh, Anything you'd like to come in on on this sort of international perspective? And indeed, I guess, uh, Josiah, you must do this as well with a certain Trust. Look at other countries.
3: Absolutely. So... I think there's a lot that we can take from the US, for example. And it's something that Barnaby touched earlier where he said, you know, uh, you, you don't specialise until much later on during your, your course. And I, I remember when I spent some time in, in the States, I really did appreciate the fact that, you know, there was a broad curriculum. There was so much on offer, so much to do, and you weren't limited by all pigeonhole. I think one of the great things about the UK education system, but also maybe one of its, its Achilles heel, is how it basically... It puts you in a hole very, very quickly, and you have to decide at the age of sixteen what you want to do in life and where you want to go. And you know, if you decide at some point during that journey that you want to change, and know you hit nineteen second year of university, you go, "What have I done? I've, I've done a history degree. I don't know what I don't know what I want to do. I've done a law degree. Like, oh my goodness, law just isn't for me." And you're sort of stuck, and uh, you have to all of a sudden figure out where, where where you want to go and how to turn left or right. So, I do think that there is there are lessons we can learn from other systems. You know, looking at Germany, looking at France for example and their education systems and how there's much more of an onus of of having a broad education that is for sure something that we can take on but but having said that, I do have to say that I think we actually do a fantastic job uh, in in the UK in terms of education of, of, all, of all the country. You know, we are home to some of the best universities, the best talent. You know, it's actually phenomenal what, what we what we do. Um, the, uh, I think that the, the real issue is about how do we spread that for, for as many people as possible? And, you know, touching on the things about vocational courses, that is a real gap that is evident. That is something that we need to pay much more attention to to ensure that you know we're actually allocating or you know we're putting individuals in the places that they want to be and the, the places that they can excel and they can see a vision for themselves and even if they decide what at some point in their life to say absent you know you know what i i don't, I don't want to go down this path anymore they, they won't be stuck you know they, they'll have a, a way out of that's i think the lessons we can learn from from abroad
0: thank you kim do you want to come in on this one
1: Thank you. I just want to say, though, deeply unequal. Our system has its positives. You know, the public-private partnerships, the Royal Springboard, for example, Eton X, Cambridge and Oxford widening and broadening their uh, participation for those that go on to university. And and I do agree with you, Barnaby. The UK does need more emphasis on vocational uh, education. Um, Really, kind of seeing the system. Placing an increased value in and acceptance of vocational qualifications and skills. You know, we'd like to see apprenticeships acknowledged as a, variable, a viable alternative to university in which few of the students obtain the grades to go on to. That's certainly something that we've seen. We'd like to really see a longer term thinking, probably less exam, less exam focus, so that ch- children and young people are given earlier interventions and develop the life skills resilience, problem solving, creativity that they require. But I guess uh, something else that we we could draw upon is the Montessori model, encouraging peer mentoring from a young age and experiential learning. Um, I think the US has a broad liberal arts curriculum at HE uh, that allows students to explore different majors, which I know was discussed. I think one thing that possibly I'd really like to see in education is something like the use of the Burtsog model, which is used in the, in care, where actually a team of um, teachers would come together. Um, and currently this is used in, in terms of a team of nursing to provide the personal, social and clinical. And actually then they would decipher how they go on to support children. So really kind of an outcomes-based model.
0: Thank you. I'm conscious we're running... Uh out of time we've got five minutes left um, we've got an anonymous uh, question here about motivation and inspiration so how do we inspire the youth of today to work harder I grew up in a working class environment and didn't know about the bigger world and so didn't have the drive to work hard until I failed a year at university and realized that I needed education to get on in life so I guess there are young people who are brought up in an environment where that, that sort of mentality is there. How do, we, how do we cut into that? I mean, Josiah, that may be something the Sutton Trust have to think a lot about. <laughs>
3: No, absolutely. I, I spend a lot of my um, uh, summers uh, attending summer schools and going to universities across the, the UK. And um, the, the biggest thing that you notice, and it's something that Kim touched on earlier, which is about the imposter syndrome. Um, a number of students have the, uh, the imposter syndrome. And, you know, you walk into a school and you tell Welcome to the Sutton Trust alumni community. You know your community of absolutely one weird and wonderful people, all of whom have charted this exact same path. And look at the wonderful things that they've done. And they all of a sudden feel emboldened and and feel much more confident in themselves and the outcomes. That is a function of what the Sutton Trust um, has been able to do: inspire confidence, inspire next generation through summer schools, through programs, through early years. There's a lot of work that's been done um, by the Sutton Trust to to, to achieve that. I think lessons that you know other charities other institutions etc can can learn from um but that question about how to uh, inspire the next generation the youth it's it's really about speaking to them i mean it, you know it, it doesn't really get any any more you know, complex <laughs> uh, you, you have the conversation uh, you tell them what, what's possible you give them a few resources and you let them their mind go run with it um, and, and you know young people are incredibly um uh, they're, they're hardworking they're innovative they're creative they love solving problems, and you can't stop them for energy. That's for sure. They'll have lots and lots of energy, but you, we've got to do something to, to direct it in the right way and to give the necessary guidance. I think that's all. Really, young people are screaming, screaming for you know, give us mentors, give us people we can look up to, role models, um, and you know, be- believe us, we'll you know, we'll be able to, to to go really, really far. Um, so that's what that's what I always say. I think I think it's you know maybe it's it's a, a feeling or a sentiment that the anonymous um, attendee has had. Um, which is a, a feeling that, you know, in that working class environment, you don't have enough mentors. You don't have people who are going to push you to go into the, the right direction. You know, speaking anecdotally, it was, it was only because of my mentors who had unwavering belief in my ability that I am where, where I am, and I absolutely would not be able to, to, to you know, to, to be at this debate without them. I mean, they're like, it's, it's an extraordinary thing of mentors, and, uh, and we should encourage them as much as possible.
0: Thank you. Kim?
1: Thank you. De- Josiah, I couldn't agree with you more. Just to further build on that, as educators, it is our responsibility to inspire uh, and really uh, ensure that young people are getting what they need and the students are getting exposure to as many things as possible. Um, and and, I, and I, you know, I think it as a real privilege to be an educator and actually how do we ensure that we can expose students to as much as possible to ensure that we they do actually really broaden their horizon. And not feel pressured, but actually feel inspired.
0: Barnaby, you give you the last word because we haven't got time for any more questions.
1: Yeah, and I, I would I would just add to that: uh,
2: we must push back against any narrative which suggests that young people can't succeed because they're on free school meals, because they live in the northeast of England, because they're a white working class boy. You know, all those stereotypes which are stereotypes and are very often, and usually, in fact, for the vast majority, completely false. We mustn't allow school-aged children to believe that they cannot succeed. Um, And once they've established that they can do well, then we must provide them with really good career advice. So they understand, you know, if you do well in exams then this is the option for you. If you don't do well in exams, there are other good pathways available to you. But it's, you know, you have a good future leading to a successful job if you try hard. And that's down to inspirational teachers and mentors, exactly as Josiah has said.
0: Great positive note to go out on. We need to draw to a close. Um, For those who've taken part today, if you'd like to get alerts about forthcoming webinars, you can sign up on the keep in touch page of our website or simply email us at inquiries at cumberlandlodge.ac.uk and a reminder that dialogue and debate generally takes place at 11am on the first Wednesday of each month. Before I say goodbye, I'd just like to highlight that, like all charities, Cumberland Lodge is facing difficult times during the pandemic. If you'd like to support our work, we'd be grateful if you consider making a small donation, which you can do Online via our Just Giving page. And we put the link up at the immediately after the webinar. Thank you, everyone who's taken part today. Really uh, great questions and very, very informative discussion. And especially thanks to Kim, Barnaby, and Josiah for such a rich, stimulating discussion. I hope a constructive discussion as well, with some good things will come out of this. So thank you very much, everyone, and goodbye.